Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with an old friend, former colleague at INET, Marshall Arbach. Marshall is very, very immersed in political economy. He's been a fellow at the Levy Institute part of Jamie Galbraith's group on economics and peace and security. He's involved in real vision. He's got a hand in everything and an imagination for everything. And it's great to see you again, Marshall. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's always nice to be back with old friends again. So uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. Even if it's only virtually. <laughs> uh, that's right. Well, that's all we can do nowadays. You know, that's a big right. virtual hug for you. But uh, we'll, we'll do the real McCoy at some point in the future, I hope. So <laughs> uh, I'll hold you to that promise and you, I'll invite you here too. Yeah. Uh, so, Marshall, we got, we're standing here in February 2021. Pandemic seems to have intensified. We have a new president. We're... 20 days into the first 100 days, climate change is on the horizon. People are concerned about money in politics and corruption. Our mutual friend Tom Ferguson has been continuing to illuminate the refractory nature of that. But I'm just curious, what are you seeing? What, what gives you heartburn? What makes you applaud? What are you not seeing that you'd like to tell? Oh, well, um, you know, I, I mean, the one thing I, I am seeing, it's, it's just this uh, profound sense of relief everywhere. You know, like I, I, I you know, I, I left the country before uh, Biden came into office. And uh, I, I mean, the minute I got off the, the plane in Toronto, I, I, I had a, a COVID test and I just sort of said, oh, my God, what it's like to be back in a, in a functional country again. Um, and and, and there's this profound sense of normality. But then, and then the election happened, and of course we had the dramatics of January the sixth, which was the worst. Um, but I, I mean, since Biden's come in, it's like just like, oh wow, you know, it doesn't. It's not like a just constant hate fest every day, and 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 um, you know the you know proverbial excrement show. It's just great to it's, it's so so in that sense, normality is um, is a good thing. Although. Um, you know, the last time we had this return to no normalcy, as we called it, we had Warren Harding. And obviously you, you hope that Joe Biden doesn't become Warren Harding. And I guess in, in that regard, I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised, maybe because I started with such low expectations, but I, I have been pleasantly surprised with what, how, what he's done so far. I mean, I, I was glad that, you know, he, he rejected uh, Larry Summers' uh, uh, approach on, uh, on the fiscal stimulus package. Um, he seems to be taking a good lead from from Bernie Sanders, um, and I guess that's so, so. I find that very satisfying. That what gives me heartburn is that you know we're still, you know, a long way from um, you know getting this uh, pandemic resolved, and I do worry about the the longer term impact, uh, not just uh, in regards to the you know the the, the younger kids, but um, just um, how incredibly hard it's going to be to recover from the the hysteresis effects, and and what kind of a a country or even a civilization we're going to have in the next few years as a result of it. Well, you know, during the uh, Trump administration, people said, well, people are 
despairing. People are despondent. People are vulnerable to an authoritarian demagogue. People have rejected expertise. But at some level, the pandemic is an unmasking which says our health systems weren't right. Globalization has side effects. Not all of our preparations were adequate to give us confidence in our social safety, safety nets, and health systems. Maybe some skepticism about expertise is warranted. And then yeah. the question is, how do you restore that trust? How do you bring it back to a place of, I'll call it comfort or resolve that you can believe in your government, you can believe in scientists, you can believe in expertise, and the world's not going to melt down in a shocking way. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And and uh, it's not just in the U.S. I mean, um, it, that was also um, a quite a, that, that line about experts, you know, people being tired of expertise. Michael Gove said exactly the same thing in the U.K. after, uh, you know, after Brexit as well. And you know, to some, maybe in one one sense, it's an anti-intellectualism, but I think it's more than that. I just think that you know, it's you know, it's, it's to paraphrase David Halberstam, it's like the, our best and brightest have led us astray, and um, and and um, you know, our government has not been acting consonant with broader public purpose, and that has been a concern. So, I mean, I think somehow you've got to get that back on course if you're going to get uh, um, you know people to have some faith and something to root for in the, the government I mean I get the sense now with Biden there's just relief and um, you know that we're not uh, being exposed to something that's that's truly awful anymore that, you know, that so we're getting through the the PTSD but you know is he the is he going to be like uh, the FDR in waiting or is he going to be you know as I said before Warren Harding yeah yeah well you and I spent a lot of time together around the time of uh just after TARP and the Dodd-Frank financial questions. And uh, it, it seemed to me that there was a loss of trust set in motion after we had deregulated finance, then finance got bailed out and mortgage overhangs didn't get adjusted and nobody went to jail and the campaign finance coffers of both House, Senate, and White House was full with Wall Street donations. And so the question of rules, regulations, enforcement, appointments, and administration, by, by I believe it was either late 2010 or early 2011, there was a, an official who went unnamed on Politico. And he said, I work with Obama but we can't go back and be like FDR because the people no longer believe in government like they did at the time of Franklin Roosevelt. And my own opinion is Franklin Roosevelt had to chop a lot of wood before that trust was created. But <laughs> yeah. so that's yeah, a funny I, I rear right view. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the point was right after that, a person who was in the arts, but very sophisticated named Stuart Zeckman was on a podcast and he went into the Gallup surveys that showed that liberal progressives didn't trust government. And what he found out was why. They didn't trust government because they thought government had been captured by moneyed interests. 
Yeah. And all of those elements, what I call the commodification of social design and enforcement, was rampant at the time of the bailouts, unmasked by, by the bailouts. And it wasn't just academics with weird theories of perfect foresight or whatever in financial markets. It was a, a, a deep sense of systemic corruption that we were looking the other way. And, yeah. I, and I think Zeckman really hit the nail on the head, which is, it's not that government can't be an alternative to unfettered free markets. It's that government that is commodified and yeah. captured is not going to be something you can put your faith into. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I you know, I, we did talk about this a lot. I remember that uh, we had many nights talking about it. And I, I remember at, at that, after that crisis, just thinking, where is all the anger? You know, like, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, I, I just thought, you know, there'd be, you know, the protests, the blood on the streets, sort of the thing that we saw the last uh, couple of years, but it wasn't happening then. And I always said that, um, you know, Trump was as much a consequence as a, as a cause of that. And, and um, I guess what I hope is that, you know, that Biden doesn't just consider it enough to go back to the status quo ante and, 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 and have a, an Obama-style restoration, because if he does, yeah. my fear is the next time it won't be Trump, it'll be some guy that actually knows how the machinery of government works and will be far more dangerous. And then we're, I think we're really in trouble. So I think the stakes are still very, very profound. I think, you know, the, the temptation is just to, you know, have a nap saying, oh, whew, that nightmare's over. But if you don't actually address that. And so in, in that sense, I, as I said, um, so, uh, Biden came through with a, what I thought was a fairly bold uh, proposal. Um, but I am concerned that he, uh, I'm not sure he totally buys it himself, you know, like, uh, for example, he insisted on having a $15 per hour minimum wage. And now there's reports saying, you know, that he doesn't think he'll get it through it effectively undercutting the, 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 the proposal um, on health insurance. As you say, the pandemic has exposed some serious structural problems with the American healthcare system, and he still seems to be fixated on the idea of just building Obamacare in a much more uh, strong way, a a acting to subsidize the existing system, give people access to private health insurance. And you know, if you have, if you're unemployed, then that doesn't help you at all. And uh, if you're unemployed because you're shutting down an economy to um, prevent the spread of a very dangerous pandemic. Um, and then that thereby people lose access to their health care, then effectively you've got policy cutting across, uh, you know, at, at cross purposes. And, and, and you know, I, I, in that sense, I think what the Europeans did, you know, in places like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, you know, nationalizing payroll and things like that was, was probably a more successful approach. And I also think, you know, that what, what Canada did at the time too, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, especially when Christia, our old friend Christia Freeland became finance minister up in Canada and in her last statement, she came up with a fairly punchy, robust uh, uh, economic plan. And her philosophy was, you know, it's better to do too much than too little because, you know, you can't roll it back. I mean, you can always roll it back by taxation, but you can't get get a second crack at the, uh, you know, uh, uh, pick of the cherry if you don't get it right uh, the first time. And Biden, to his credit, realizes that. I always got the sense with Obama that he was negotiating against himself. He would always try to be reasonable. And his belief in this faux bipartisanship, which was just, um, you know, he was being played by a lot of these Republicans. In the end, he didn't get a, a, a ounce of support from them. So, um, you know, Biden seems to have learned from that, which is good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right that uh, 
first of all, the Obama years did, uh, because of the financial crisis and the structure of the bailouts and uh, what I call tepidness of reform, led to things like the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, left and right versions, the House shifted to Republican control, then the Senate, and then Donald Trump. So as you said at the outset, uh, Trump was a symptom of people not feeling, I mean, I, I'll inject, there was probably an element of racism involved because sure, sure. of Obama's being an African American. Absolutely. But, but aside from that, there was a sense of the elites came in and used the public treasury after telling us you can't afford school systems and infrastructure and healthcare systems. They codified a healthcare system, which did give coverage to people who had none but did it on the terms that made American health coverage about 40% more expensive than the other OECD countries. Mm. With poorer with, outcomes as well. <laughs> with, with the 38th best healthcare system, according to the World Health Organization, in terms of performance, the outcomes you refer to. And at the same time, pharmaceutical prices were unlike any place else on earth. A lot of the research was funded by the public and the output was private equity firms and pharmaceutical companies making huge windfalls using monopoly power that came from intellectual property rights. And I, I, I had the pleasure the other day of watching Peter Orzag, Bob Rubin, and Joe Stiglitz in a debate. It would, I, yeah. I viewed it as a kind of healing of the different wings <laughs> a, of the a Democratic truth, a Party. Truth commission. <laughs> and uh, and what was fascinating was Bob Rubin said, I may be a hawk in the long term, but I've looked at the data on U.S. healthcare and the OECD and its performance. We could get better for lower price and save and give Medicare for all. So he was he was pitching in to the conversation yeah. that we can do better. This is in the United States. But there are, there are a lot of realms, a lot of people talking about the military-industrial complex. Why are we modernizing nuclear arsenals right now? Is that pork, rent-seeking, or is there some danger that we should be uh, mindful of? I think, I think that's a wide-open debate, but it's also, would I say, digging into fiscal capacity that might be used for things like climate change. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the uh, when you're spending uh, ten times as much uh, uh, as much as the next ten countries combined on defense, you know, there's something that's probably not not right there. I, I mean, you know, it's interesting that, that with the the Pentagon, it seems to me that, you know, they were the first to really learn how to game the system in the way they they uh, were able to um, uh, secure constant increases in funding. I mean, even, even in the years during the, the so-called Cold War dividend, there were never actually cuts in defense expenditure. There was yeah. reductions well, in the rate Eisenhower of warned us as, yeah. on the exit ramp of the military industrial complex. That's yeah, right. that's right. And, and, and they did it very astutely. You know, they would, uh, they would uh, uh, backload the costs of any weapon system, so uh, underestimating it. Uh, and then once, you know, a certain amount of money would be sunk into it, they would say, well, we can't stop now because we've spent X billions of dollars on it. And then they politically engineer it by, you know, ensuring that you've got uh, the, the production done in as many different states as possible so that if there is some talk about uh, 
about uh, uh, cutting back defense expenditures, you know, they would say, well, you know, it's too bad we're going to have to cut this base, say, in, you know, Portsmouth, New Hampshire or somewhere in North Dakota where there's some, you know, a lot of good jobs and, and you, you create political pressures that way. And then I think, um, you know, other big uh, entities like Pharma, Wall Street, they learned. I mean, they learned that's the way you do it, and 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 it, they learned that it's a pay-to-play system, and so everybody does it now. And you know, as our mutual friend Tom Ferguson has pointed out, very eloquently. Um, you know, it's uh, it's the investment uh, uh, choice theory of uh, choice theory of politics. You know, you put your money in, you make your bets, place your bets, and you try to get a return on that. Well, there are a lot of folks who thought that the structure of the bailouts after TARP and after the rebellion against the great financial crisis, you would have thought the pandemic would have created a very different structure. And as our mutual friend Dennis Kelleher said, we didn't bail out people, we bailed out assets. Yeah, that's right. And we did it again. Is, and, uh, yeah. and I really thought, you know, I remember uh, thinking that the next time, you know, with it, well, effectively, we, we did lead a, let a go, good crisis go to waste in, in 2009 to you know, use Rahm Emanuel's expression. And I thought there's no way that's going to happen again. But of course, this crisis wasn't really a financial crisis where you could hold the banks responsible. In fact, there's been very little that's right. outbreak of anger against, you know, the likes of Goldman Sachs uh, or even BlackRock, which seems to be the, the new firm doing God's work right now. Um, but but um, uh, nonetheless, I, I just think we've been conned under what I call this collective surgical mask and you know, the, it, everything's been obscured because um, you were able the, the the government was able to use this pandemic to you know and the, the, to, to shove a lot of, uh, of money to uh, uh, entities that probably didn't deserve it you didn't get uh, you, you didn't really establish any kind of floor for the people um, and, uh, and and there was no conditionality uh, tied to any of the, uh, the, the the funds that were given to uh, a lot of these businesses like say Boeing even even before um, you know the, the the pandemic Boeing was making planes that were you know killing people and um, and they were having problems mm. with their their civilian operations so uh, it, 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 we, we, we didn't really address that we just rushed the money through and then once those guys got paid off all of a sudden the entire urgency just went out the window so in that sense it was similar to what happened in the the, the bailout we, we pri again prioritize institutions maybe different kinds uh, they, or donors yeah yeah exactly donors uh, they, yeah. they they got their way and uh, but as opposed to um, helping people that really needed the assistance mm -hmm. well i think the uh, other thing that's quite un how you say I, I hate to use the pun unmasked but uh the pandemic really showed how little protection for essential health care workers existed at the time when these people were asked essentially to risk their lives to take care yeah. of others. Yeah, it's shocking when you see these images of people, first of all, using masks over and over again, the same ones, um, getting using garbage bags as their, part of their PPE because we don't manufacture anything at home. So, in fact, um, it not only exposed the, uh, the destruction and the degradation of our public health infrastructure, but I think it also highlighted the limits of this whole, what I call the Apple model, where you know you uh, um, um, outsource all the uh, the manufacturing overseas and uh, but but retain the software uh, at home i mean at the end of the day if you're not making stuff um, there is a substantial skill degradation and, and you create um, um, significant vulnerabilities i mean even even uh, lawrence summers uh, said that in his uh, uh, a recent article he said you know we've got to talk about prioritizing detroit man over davos man 
um, and he said that uh, we have to give consideration to uh, resiliency and redundancy in our economy and not just efficiency. Right. And I think right. he was absolutely right about that. Mm-hmm. Well, my first, uh, you know, I grew up in Detroit. We've talked about many times, but uh, yeah. my first philanthropic effort when the pandemic uh, came out was I had a friend who knew how to locate surgical masks and I bought 2000 masks for hospital workers in Detroit. Our board member at INET, John Paul, who's an African-American from Detroit, he had nieces and sisters and who all worked in the hospitals. And when I learned of this, we got together and got them a couple thousand masks, which, you know, for that system, that's just a couple weeks of a patch in a few hospitals. But sure. it, it was just shocking to me. My dad was a physician in Detroit. That's part of why I did it, you know, just yeah. out of memory of an honor for his work in the medical systems. But it, it was it was shocking all over that these kind of, which I might call basic underpinnings, were not there. We were running, like you or like Larry Summers said, on too thin a margin. Yeah. Too much too much narrow efficiency and global supply chains and what have you. And uh, I, I, I'm curious, coming to the pandemic and looking at foreign policy, I was just given a book called Capitalism on a Ventilator. Hmm. And it's by a group of social activists in China and in the United States. Uh, Margaret Kimberly from the Black Agenda Report is one of the writers, and I had learned about it. And uh, somebody gave me a, the equivalent of a Kindle copy on a thing called Kobo. And this book is really saying these are the two leaders, maybe aspiring leader and existing leader of the world system. Let's compare how they responded to the crisis. And on both sides of the ledger, meaning the Chinese writers, other Asian writers, and the American and European writers, America didn't score very well. No. It, and no. so... Uh, I don't think anyone they, in the West really did, though. I mean, I think uh, certainly the U U.S. and indeed the U.K. are low on the totem pole. Yeah. Uh, but when you compare... Uh, the, let's say, the Western countries uh, 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 in, in general. I mean, some of them did a little better, relatively speaking, Germany yeah. um, and, and, and uh, maybe France to some degree in the earlier stages. Oh, but Denmark. compare that. Yeah, Denmark. Yeah, Denmark. Yeah, but then compare them to, say, Taiwan or, or, or yeah. South Korea or even yeah. Japan. I mean, Japan, you know, made a lot of mistakes, but I think they've had what, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a few thousand, a couple of, a few thousand fatalities. I can't remember the exact yeah. number, but even so, that's a nation of 130 million people. Taiwan mm -hmm. has had seven, the last time I looked, which was a few, a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, they've had the yeah. most extraordinary uh, response. Yeah. So, you that's know, I'm, right. I'm, a little, I'm a little bit uncomfortable, you know, using China uh, per se as a, as a model, because I do think that there's aspects of their system which we you know we in the west would find unsavory but i and yes. i and i but i do and, think that there are other and you don't know the things. integrity of the information reported yeah. either that, exactly that, yeah. exactly but and, and so it's unfortunate that say a country like taiwan uh, uh let's call it a country rather than a renegade province it you know it's done su such a marvelous job and i don't think it's got adequate um, um uh, credit for it and this is a country that's a vibrant economy a vibrant multi-party democracy has a woman president 
and I think it's one of the models. And they, they clearly learned from the SARS epidemic back in 2003, 2004. Um, Europe um, did very, very well in a lot of ways early on. But, but even places like Germany now, they're starting to run into problems. And I, and I just think that this whole collective um, austerity that they've had over the past uh, few decades has really undermined their response to the pandemic as well. Mm-hmm. Now, New Zealand did very well. Another woman prime minister. And, yep. uh our friend from the private sector, Rodney Jones, played a big role back there. I just did a, a podcast with him last week, and uh, he came out of Beijing and went there, and he knew the prime minister and talked very convincingly early on. And as he said to me, I got five kids, three in graduate school, two as undergraduates. Everybody's back to normal. As long as they don't open the international airports, we'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh... and that's obviously a, a problem longer term, I guess. But but uh, I, I wonder whether, you know, uh, that, that how, how long some of these uh, impacts will last. You know, I mean, when, the, when this crisis Man, first started, um, you know, I, I, I would have these debates with people saying, well, you know, People always overstate the uh, the impacts of these changes. That things could bounce back to, to what they were before fairly quickly. But occasionally, you get these profound events like the Great Depression in ni- the 1930s, which really changed behaviors uh, for decades to come. And I, I wonder whether you know the pandemic is going to have that that kind of an impact, uh, or you know whether we do go back to you know some sort of roaring 20s type of um, you know, ball of hedonism and forget everything about it. Yeah, well, that, that, how would I say, there are actions, as you talked about, Biden becoming president and how he leads can affect that trajectory quite a lot. I think international cooperation on climate change. If the United States and China are competing over some things but collaborate on climate modernization, uh, so-called renewable energies and primarily wind and solar and deployment throughout Asia to be very interesting that I, I just saw a movie I'll tout my friend Alex Gibney the uh, documentary oh yeah, Alex is great <laughs> his uh, most recent project well that's not any tr- his most recent project at the time of the uh, pandemic was a movie called totally under control which was a comparison of the Trump administration and the South Koreans on the pandemic. And it was released 10 days before the presidential election. And uh, it was watched like wildfire because it showed the falseness of the response in the United States and the integrity of the response in South Korea, which is... Well, it kind of, it, it kind of reminds me of that, um, that scene from Animal House where you've got Kevin Bacon, you're holding up his hand saying, everybody be calm, everything's all right. And then before he says, run over and turn it to flat as a pancake, actually. And then it was even worse because uh, even after he lost Trump, that, that, that is, you know, he spent the next uh, um, two and a half months trying to undermine the result and, and was obsessed with getting it to overturn. Uh, yes. As opposed to focusing on um, on getting these uh, these distributions uh, um, uh, sort of these vaccine distributions sorted out, you know the irony is that you know on uh, you know he, he was a, a monstrosity as a president, but the, uh, on thing, on Operation you know I've got to give him some credit on Operation Warp Speed because you know he ha- he gave the responsibility to some very very good people and, and surprisingly he he left it alone, um, but I think to go back to your, an earlier point you made this is a. Um, you know, a, a, a very interesting test case where, you know, the, the so-called market-based uh, system that we use in the U.S. for healthcare, 
did, wasn't really used for uh, under Operation Warp Speed. The government effectively underwrote a lot of these uh, of, um, of vaccine uh, vaccines by committing pre-purchasing, which I think is a very, very good model to use going forward, even amongst the pen, even with the Pentagon. You, you create markets by saying, if you can give us something, deliver us something with, you know, these specs, we're, we'll guarantee you a market of X. And, and I, you know, and this goes back to, you know, something that, you know, some of like our old friend Bill Janeway talks about, you know, how, how you, you need uh, a government, not just to be an umpire, but to help uh, establish a platform where you can mm -hmm. have a proper degree of national development uh, uh, taking place. And Mariana Mazzucato has also made the same point. Mm -hmm. Bill just created a course for INET, which is an eight or nine part course about the history of state and economic transformation. And whether it's highway systems or Silicon Valley or war preparation, but the culminating is what do we do? The culminating episode is what do we do about climate change? And the mythology that the free market does it all by itself, as opposed to the free market is an important element of propulsion if it's being directed by the state properly, and then the state can play a diminished role later. But Bill explores this in some very, very fine and very well polished and prepared lectures that just came yeah, out. Yeah, I, I saw the uh, promo for it. I'm very excited to see that because I think Bill's, yeah. uh, uh, you know, 100% right. And of course, he has that unique perspective being mm -hmm. someone who, uh, you know, is both a market practitioner and also has uh, has uh, done the academic work as well, much like you in yeah. that regard. And and and, uh, and so, and I think so he, he, he is in a position of unique authority to challenge the market fundamentalism because you know his own experience uh, it doesn't yeah. uh, he, he always talks it. about uh which you might call the approach of the neoliberal and so that as he finished at cambridge england his phd he decided to take a 45-year sabbatical in the private sector but now <laughs> things are propitious for him to come back and play the role he had always wanted to uh, yeah he, he could be the heir, the real heir to Joan Robinson at this point, maybe. That's right. Or Richard yeah. Con, Richard Kahn, I believe, was his yeah. dissertation yeah. advisor. But, yeah, that's uh, right. But but it's it's certainly no, but he's certainly right about that. And and, and um, you know, I, I look, I, I remember when the uh, pandemic first started, and there was talk about you know the need for a vaccine, and you know the the overwhelming consensus within the scientific community was you know. It, well, some people said you're never going to get a, a, a cure for a coronavirus. Uh, um, and then there were others that said, well, if you do get it, uh, typically these things, you know, you never get them before three or four years. And we did it in or and largely with the help of the government funding. This was done in less than a year. I mean, the, the in a way that that's where that that's led to some sort of elevated and uh, or, or disappointing expectations because because we got we were so successful in getting the the vaccine everyone just assumed that we were going to devote the same kind of um, success towards distributing uh, this and and there wouldn't be any teething problems so i i guess in in that sense the problems that we we have right now should be uh, expected even if they are disappointed uh, d disappointing uh, uh, and um, you know um uh Obviously, we, you know, you, you do need still a fairly robust government hand to help deal with the logistics of distribution. And I think I think that's where one another area where Biden clearly is doing a better job than Trump was. Well, I think uh, that what you might call Janeway recipe might be just what the doctor ordered at this juncture for climate change. 
And I mentioned your fellow Canadian, Seth Klein, Naomi's older brother, who's been involved in a number of INET events. He wrote a book this past year. I made a podcast with him a couple months ago called The Good War. And it's about how Canada was involved in World War II, three years before the United States, and how they put their resources together to be of service to the Allied powers. And then he draws that analogy to mounting the charge to address climate change, where Canada is one of the six largest producers of fossil fuels, so it has both supply and demand side adjustments to reorienting society of large scale. And uh, I'm very interested in, as you said, sometimes they think it'll take three or four years. Sometimes you got to get on your horse. You know, if the yeah. Martians, if the Martians attacked us tonight, well, maybe we would know what that secret uh, defense budget was all about, why it was so big. Yeah. But we'd start responding very quickly. The question yeah. is, with well, climate change being an ominous destroyer out there, albeit one of our own indirect creation, can we mount the charge and meet the timetables necessary in your mind? And what role would the state play in that? Well, it'll be it'll be tough, and you know, you, there's a fine line because obviously a pandemic, in in some respects, gives you um, uh, an ideal warning shot, and um, uh, and so there's a sense of urgency that's created. Although if you keep pressing that, you know, uh, shall we say the the panic, I don't want to call it panic mongering, but if this this sense of imminent threat all the time, eventually there's a, the you know the, the 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 boy who cried wolf phenomenon that, that comes along. Mm -hmm. So it's a mm -hmm. it's a fine balance, and 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 yet uh, you do want to mobilize people in a, in a sort of Manhattan style project uh, uh, to, to get it, to get it going in the, in the right way. And I think um, in that regard, the way we've handled, for example, uh, the the vaccine process, I think that can provide a template going forward. Uh, as to, you know, how we can use government much more productively. And that's not to say that you, it's done through some GOSS plan, central planning. That's not it at all. As you pointed out, the market is a very, very powerful mechanism, but you can shape it towards a much broader uh, social purpose. It, it, it's a tool, not a deity. And, yeah, uh, no, exactly. <laughs> Don't tell Milton Friedman that, but yeah, no, exactly. That, uh, that's, that's exactly what it is. And so um, that's, that's really what we've got to do. And so I, I don't see why it has to be uh, uh, that, that the, the vaccinations, the pandemic, th those should be create, th those cr do create, you know, perfect illustrations of what we can do when we do uh, put our f funding, uh, you know, our hats together collectively and, and work towards something like this. You mentioned uh, you, when you were talking about the boy that cried wolf, you said it's a fine balance. And I laughed in the, my, inside as I heard you because when 9-11 happened, I said to a friend of mine from India, what should I read? And he gave me a novel by a man named Rohantan Mystery called A Fine Balance. And the title comes from an old adage in Indian philosophy. Life is a fine balance between hope and despair. And yes. as you say, the boy that cried wolf can make you go numb because he excites your despair, but it never yes. appears and you become callous or insulating yourself from that anxiety. On the other hand, uh, when the real challenge is there, you got to rise to the occasion. 
Yeah, so it's a fine line between uh, you, you want to people to be aware of the gravity of it, but on the other hand, uh, you, you, you also want to inspire and appeal to their better, impu their better impulses as well. And that's, you know, a, a real fine art of statesmanship if you can get it right. Well, you talk about FDR. FDR was viewed as a silver spoon in the mouth kind of kid. Grew up with privilege. And then he saw what was going on. He rose to the occasion. Yeah, And it might be that in order to engender that hope and relieve the despair that the President of the United States has to, which you might call, not for a transient period in a special circumstance, be deferential to the market and take the lead in a way that changes the signals and brings the market to the challenge. Yeah, and in, in that sense, I, I mean... You know, Biden is someone who's, you know, I mean, the thing about FDR was, you know, he was, as you say, perceived to be a bit of a, a lightweight. He was a, a dilettante, you know, a, a, a frat boy, a Harvard boy. And then he, of course, was stricken with polio, which I think did have a very, very marked impact on his um, his capacity to empathize. It was a great personal tragedy for him. Um, and uh, literally, he gave his life to the presidency through, through that. He was not a well man for much of it. But... Um, I mean, Biden, look, I don't want to analogize this too closely, but obviously he's a, a person who's gone through enormous personal tragedy. And um, so uh, he definitely has the empathy gene in spades uh, in contrast to, uh, well, obviously in contrast to Trump, but even in contrast to uh, uh, Obama. I think uh, Obama, you know, a highly technocratic, uh, logical guy, you know, I mean, it was interesting when, when Len, I, I saw, uh, because I'm a, a little Star Trek nerd, I remember seeing something, uh, a little thing on Netflix featuring a story on bio on Leonard Nimoy. And when he died, there was some comment from Obama saying, oh, Spock died. I love that guy. I sort of, yeah, I said, yeah, of course he would love Spock. <laughs> and uh, so, and I always thought there was a little bit more, you know, I, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that, I, I wish uh, that a little bit more passion had come out of the. the, the and then I, I was going to say a, a little Otis Redding to go with yeah. Mr. Spock. No, that's right. <laughs> that would have been very, very nice, actually. So, um, and, and 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 I guess Biden, I, I at least has that. Um, and so you hope that that he can, you know, uh, direct that uh, at least uh, uh, in, in in the direction that uh, we'd like. Well, we'd like to see. And so far, so good. And then again, you know, you've got Bernie Sanders as head of the Budget Committee, which uh, at least for until the balance of the Senate changes. It, maybe it won't, maybe it'll change more favorably. Yeah. But I think well, that that's great. I think uh, I've talked on other podcasts as a guest, because I used to work with the Senate Budget Committee. Sure, I remember that, yeah. And you get the, what I'll call, Christmas tree bills, yeah. which is often how everything comes together. You know, you've had all these different things, and they've come out of committee and they've stalled. But when you got to put it in a coalition near the end of the year, to get things through, everybody attaches their Christmas tree ornaments, that their favored pork, if you will. And, uh, and the Christmas tree bill is often shepherded by the head of the budget committee. So yeah. he, can, he can include different kinds of ornaments uh, that give him power. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I hate to think where we'd be today had we not had that result in Georgia, because it, it is hard for me to imagine that any of these things that we're now talking about would have actually been possible if Mitch McConnell was still the uh, the Senate Majority Leader. I just think uh, you'd you'd have a very very different uh, state of affairs. Oh, he did play a very uh, interesting role in the impeachment hearings, uh, 
Well, he wanted to have it both ways. Yeah. I, I was I was vaguely surprised when he came out and, you know, and subtly dropped hints to The New York Times that he was, uh, um, you know, uh, happy to let this proceed. Um, but um, and yet at the same time, he would he would never go so far. He, he would only go so far. I mean, at the end of the day, he, he still voted to uh, acquit uh, Trump of the uh, of the charges. And, uh, you know, if that doesn't rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors, then I don't know what the meaning of the, that, that phrase is in the Constitution. Um, but uh, so I think, as usual with him, it was it was opportunistic. Um, I'm more impressed with some of the you know someone like Mitt Romney, who you know was pretty truthful and consistent about that all the way through. Um, uh, and uh, I, maybe it's easier to do when you're a senator from uh, uh, when you're a Mormon and and a senator from Utah, for example, than uh, some of these uh, people in a, a marginal state. But, and when on the videos, you could see that he had to run down the halls of the Capitol to get away yeah. from the fray, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cut exactly. pretty close to the bone for him. The, yeah, uh, it, it, it's. Uh, but I, I wonder, you know, uh, nonetheless, uh, despite that happening, to me, that one of the more, you know, you asked at the beginning what gave, gives me heartburn. It, it still disturbs me that uh, after that uh, horrible event, that I, a large number of, of House Republicans still, you know, were, were, were trying to effectively overturn or, or undermine the results in, in, in various. Uh, um, uh, uh, elections and um, and likewise in the Senate, you know, there 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 wasn't any kind of real, you know, Howard Baker type like there was under Watergate that you know who who was prepared to put you know country ahead of party. Just and 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 I and I don't think that's good because we can all say, well, it's wonderful the Republicans, you know, let them incinerate themselves in a civil war, but it, it's clearly not healthy for any country to have a a a one party state and you 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 there's arguably already too little competition you have a corrupt party duopoly so you but you do want um the 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 two parties to have a competitive system and and, and you know a, mar a marketplace of ideas mm -hmm. and that's not going to happen well you know the 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 gop is sort of still part of this jonestown style death cult and i think you also want to have uh, a sense of stewardship you know they were you mentioned howard baker when i worked in the republican party with pete Domenici. Yeah, he's another later, good example. Peter Domenici once told me, "I'm I'm further left when you work for me than either Barack Obama or John Kerry." <laughs> yeah, the, probably the, the the president and the previous Democratic candidate was what he was referring to. But you had Howard Baker, Charles McClure, John Danforth, Nancy Cassebaum, Landon. Uh, you had a, a a moderate group during the Reagan years what I would call practice some stewardship. And things a little bit later about the advent of Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott and others became more polarized. There wasn't a center. Yeah. And, uh, and then sadly, uh, you know, with Gingrich and, you know, again, our friend Tom Ferguson has talked about this, uh, you know, that that really, that model, the, the pay to play model, he, he really entrenched that. And then the Democrats, thinking that they needed to uh, match him for fundraising uh, through the figure of Bob Rubin, effectively play, started doing the same thing. Uh, they, the, the, the committee assignments and the various positions in the party were sort of, you know, they became fundraising competitions to secure the seats. And so both parties started to move in that direction. And I don't think it's really changed since that time. And I, I and that to me, you know, if I, if I hope to see one thing, I mean, there's, you know, we need a relief bill. 
we need uh, um, um, a, a public works infrastructure bill. But I would really, there was some talk early on about some significant changes in like the Voting Rights Act and making structural changes to our democratic polity itself. And, and I think you need to do that um, to really overcome the impact of uh, yeah. money. Voter, voter suppression, gerrymandering, and money in politics have to be changed to make the system responsive. I, I view it like an engineer. You have feedback when things aren't going right and you need a corrective feedback loop. And yeah. what was happening was that, say, in the advent of globalization, a few people are making a lot of money or the advent of Silicon Valley's prominence. A few people are making a lot of money. What do they do? They then lobby Congress to let them keep their money offshore, cut their taxes and cut rebuilding infrastructure or uh, trade adjustment assistance or whatever that would have reduced their net gains. And yep. when they can exacerbate inequality, the state becomes a, an well, accomplice in yeah. exacerbating inequality. And it has been, and that's that. That has been a real problem. I mean, not just in the U.S. It's it's uh, it's happening everywhere. I mean, but that's right. But it, that's but right. at some point, you know, you just think. Um, I mean, I I I think to go back to FDR when he complained about the economic royalists, uh, he he he'd explain to those guys, you know, you don't give up a little bit more of that pie. Uh, there's gonna, not going to be any pie eat there. You for lunch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and exactly, and 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 people like Bernard Baruch understood that. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of them didn't. And now I think it's even worse. You can't really think of very many that recognize that the acute threat to their own existence, livelihoods, if they, if they continue down this path. There are some like um, Nick Hanauer, you know, another friend of mine at, uh, mm -hmm. uh, who, who mm -hmm. um, you know, has made this uh, 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 observation very astutely. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I think his point was that, you know, if you, the, the, the discourse and the, the trajectory has gone so far to the right you know, if you don't leave people with any kind of a stake in the system, then of course you're going to get more types of uh, uh, events like January the sixth, where you know people will be exploited by a demagogue, and that's that's uh, clearly very very dangerous. I remember uh, one night in Berkeley, California, I was listening to a man. I think his name is Scott Adams. He's the author of the Dilbert cartoon, I believe, yeah. and he said he had taken a lot of courses in how to uh, perform in the media and some courses in hypnosis and that he had been in classes with Steve Jobs who was considered a master communicator. And he said to the folks, watch out for this guy Trump. I think he's been taught by the same kind of people that taught me. And about, this was 2015, about three weeks later, I saw on a website that Adams had put a reeling list on how I would become a master communicator as like an autodidact, how you put it all together. And then I saw Trump was going to appear in Miami. And I thought, I got to check this out. This guy was pretty vehement. And I went and watched and Jeb Bush was the former governor. Jeb Bush says something about Trump and everybody cheers. Trump replies and everybody boos. Trump then, with 15 Republicans on the stage, looks at the TV camera and says something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, 
you saw him being cheered for and you saw me getting booed. And you might expect that here in Florida because he's a very popular former governor. But the fact of the matter is the audience in this room is not you, it's the donors. And you ought to be very careful who they cheer for and who you vote for. And I said, this guy just fried the donors running for president. He's as dangerous to the corrupted system as Scott Adams suggested. And as we yes. know, he mowed down 15 Republicans before beating Hillary Clinton. And his bumper sticker slogan was, the system is rigged. Yeah. A whole lot of people agreed with that. Uh, he, a lot of people, well, he was right. I mean, it's, uh, but he, he, uh, it reminds me of some line in the Game of Thrones that they used in, in, with Queen Cersei that, uh, you know, uh, she uses truth towards very dishonest ends, actually. And I sort of thought uh, that that's a good description of Trump as well. As a doctor's son, all I would say is he had a, he had a very, very acute diagnosis, but the remedy was terrible. No, that's right. And that, that goes to all of his uh, stuff. I mean, even on, yeah. on, uh, on China, for example, I thought, you know, the, the, uh, the, the confrontational approach, you know, he did call attention to some things that, you know, did need to be looked at. Um, you know, as you pointed out, um, Youngstown and Scranton are not figments of people's imagination. But um, deploying 19th century style tool, tariff tools, you know, uh, a la William McKinley, for a 21st century trade problem is, is not really the way to do it. Uh, and, um, and I think that, and, and likewise, um, you know, when he talked about uh, things like NATO, um, I'm not sure that he was wrong to question whether some of the, uh, the prevailing verities of, uh, that we've had over the last 75 years still uh, apply today. But because it was Trump saying it, of course, um, um, it was uh, naturally shut it down. Even though I, I suspect that going forward, uh, Biden is going to have the be exposed to similar kinds of tensions uh, with with Europe in in a host of areas, um, uh, and that that Trump rightly diagnosed. Let me let me uh, work in this context with a notion in economics. We always talk about global trading, free trade, the benefits of trade, and globalization. But my sense is, as Trump came onto the stage, people were seeing globalization as a way to hide your money offshore relocate your plant to places where there weren't labor or environmental protections, going to the lowest common denominator. You're seeing governments feeling powerless, so they couldn't enact a tax for fear that the tax base would migrate outward. And I once was involved in some proceedings related to the uh, bankruptcy of Detroit, and somebody said, that, well, yeah. we can't, we, we I, I said, I don't, uh, this was me talking. I don't understand what bankruptcy of a municipality or of a, in this case, a city means because you have a tax base. You could raise taxes rather than cut the benefits of people that worked as municipal workers for 45 years and their benefits were not lucrative. They were under <laughs> no. $20,000 a year but they're cutting them down to 12. And so somebody said to me, well, what do you expect us to do? I said, you could raise taxes. You can change the rule for future employees, but for this group that earned their benefits, you should pay them out. And they said, we can't do that. People will leave. 
And I was prepared for that. I said, well, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities has many studies that said when you raise taxes, people pay the taxes. And then about 20 minutes later, we adjourned and a state senator in Michigan came up to me. He said, Rob, they didn't tell you what they're really concerned about. They know if they vote to raise taxes, they'll get primaried. And somebody who yep. will rescind the tax will get their job. And so they, the people will pay the tax as long as it's there. But the tax won't stay and they will lose their job. And that is why we have to go ahead and cut these benefits. Because otherwise, the, the politicians can't agree. They're what you might call, they've got a... A, a, a blade at their neck yeah yeah and then you get these and so you put it into these uh you have these technocratic situations where you just put it into bankruptcy and then you have a series of um of trust banking trustee bankruptcy trustees that, that handle it so there's no political heat on the politicians themselves because you know they've left it to the hands of the technocrats this is also what you see in europe as well you see it in countries like italy you know where, where um um, you know, whenever there's a major crisis coming, you, you bring in some technocrat, some unelected technocrat who um, who takes over. Um, I mean, in fact, it's happening now. They brought in Mario Draghi to try to save the country right. again, right. save I use it very, very loosely. Um, but, you know, they also did it with Mario Monti. And, uh, you know, anytime there's a hard there was a hard decision to be made, you leave it in the hands of some a few um, unelected uh, bureaucrats who, 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 who will take the uh, decisions. And you, in fact, uh, create an even further dysfunctional democracy because nobody ever wants to make the hard decisions anymore. They just sort of say, well, we'll just um, find a way to um, pass it on to, you know, yeah. some hired gun. But what they didn't, what the people knew in Detroit at the time of that bankruptcy with two things. One, the emergency manager was trying to figure out how to sell off the largest public water company, Detroit Water and Sewage, in the Western world to a private sector entity, which was a key client of that emergency manager's private yep. consulting firm in Washington, D.C. That was the first thing that everybody comprehended. And the second thing was the, uh, how would you come to this one? Uh, well, they, they, they knew that the crash into bankruptcy was originally precipitated by the Wall Street crisis, but acutely precipitated by derivatives that were created between the mayor's office and some large-scale financial institutions, subsidiaries of Merrill Lynch and UBS and others, and that what triggered the bankruptcy was penalty clauses that were in the contract in the event that the city of Detroit got downgraded, which everybody could see coming. And that just put them over the edge. And uh, the late Wally Tuberville, who was at Demos, who worked with uh, yep, Goldman Sachs for many years, Wally wrote a beautiful report just laying out all of this and what triggered it. But what Wally told me a little bit later was the man who worked for Kwame Kilpatrick, the mayor who signed that side of the contract, immediately left and went to the firm that they yep. negotiated the contract with. And uh, by the way, Kwame was recently pardoned 
by Donald Trump. But uh, he was one of the lucky ones, along with Blago. You know, yeah, that's right. yeah. But, <laughs> no, that, uh, that may be uncorrelated with the story I'm telling. No, but the uh, <laughs> idea that derivatives pushed you over the edge and you couldn't raise taxes and municipal workers that had spent their entire life in service and, and with fire, police, municipal, uh, you know, uh, office workers, all these people were meant to suffer. Now you can understand a little bit why Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in Michigan sure. in 2016 by saying the system's rigged. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, he turned out to be even more of a rigger than the well, uh, the right. other guys. But yeah. but that and that's uh, so. Um, I don't know. Do you do you see anyone out there who? I mean, is there someone who uh, you think can transcend this? I mean, I I always think of Tom Ferguson's expression: "If you want a happy ending, go watch a Disney movie." So, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm just wondering if there is a a, a happy ending out there somewhere. Uh, uh, maybe things have got so bad now that uh, uh, the the moment will push us towards something that's totally unexpected in a good way. Well, what I would say is that my sense is not to believe in magic people. Yep, I agree. Uh, it's to look at the system and the breadth of dysfunction related to environment, related to health, related to social sustainability and inequality. And, and which is manifest in health and education and other things, have, have lost so much credibility now that, in essence, like you said, if you could change the role of money in politics, you could envision a lot of healing policies. But if you don't change money in politics, it's not like we think we're on a sustainable path that's just suffering. I think things are going to continue to be vigorous, like after George Floyd's murder. The unrest, the breaking into the Capitol, these are, these are symptoms yeah, of a I deeper agree. loss of faith. And so I, I don't know... But I, I just watched a six-part series by Adam Curtis called Can't Get You Out of My Head. It's on BBC. And he is a very, very creative and novel documentarian. But he essentially said, when you look at China, Saudi Arabia, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, the United States, and anecdotes from Europe, you see all kinds of ideologies and all kinds of things that are about power and money. And until you start making things about people, you're not going to do much better. And he quotes in the concluding episode, David Graeber, the late anthropologist, who was very imaginative, very clever man, mm. wrote that famous Agreed. book, Debt, the... 5,000 years, and, uh, and David said something to the effect that with regard to mankind, the hidden truth is what will be the future is something that we can make. And I don't get the phrase exactly right, but it's, it's in other words, it is within the realm of possibility to imagine and implement things, but it doesn't come from a magic leader 
It comes yeah. from a broad-based, unyielding, what you might call shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, that's right. Uh, and the, the counterweight to that, because Adam is not dogmatic and he's not romantic, is he used the some video of the old uh, rap artist Tupac Shakur, Shakur. And Tupac says at one point, well, just remember, in a world of love and fear, that fear is stronger. Yes, sadly, so, that's true. Um, so I, I, guess, I guess the question is, how do we get to the place where we support each other so that there isn't fear in that determination that's so strong as to thwart the initiative? Beyond my pay grade, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough I, one. I mean, this yeah. is deep yeah. psychology, yeah. and I don't, yeah. have, I don't have answers. Yeah. I have a lot of curiosity that, that Adam stirred up in me about... Uh, what can people believe in? What can people trust? Uh, how can they find courage? But but it was, I think the alternative was a vacuum that invited authoritarianism. Yeah, and that's the that's the real risk. I mean, I think um, you know th this. This may just be uh, the the calm before the the ultimate storm if we're not careful. That's the that's the real problem. Yeah. Well, at any rate, any closing thoughts here? What anything you uh, stones we didn't un turn over? Or? I you know I think we covered a hell of a lot of ground. Uh, I'm 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 now pretty well. I think anything I, I I'm sure there'll be something on. I'll, I'll wake up at two in the morning and uh, I'll say, oh, I should have said this, but no, I think we, we covered a lot of it. So, uh, you know, it was good. It was fun to do it. Fun to chat. Well, to you whatever we missed, you can put in your next op-ed in a couple months. Yeah. We can come back together and do yeah, another exactly. episode. Exactly. So, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So. At any rate, thanks for joining me. And, okay. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Yeah, I hope so. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing